prisoner of your love Entangled in your will Hot whispers in the night I'm captured by your spirit Captured Oh yes, I'm touched by the show of emotion Should I be fractured by your lack of emotion? Welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week is huge. We are talking to the Songwriter Hall of Fame inductee, the legendary Holly Knight. I think everyone pretty much knows the story. In the early 80s, Holly starts out in that excellent AOR rock band, Spider. The lead singer of Spider was Amanda Blue. We had her on the show a couple years ago. The drummer was Anton Figg. He went on to big things. And some of the songs that Holly wrote for that band became really big when they were recorded for other people. Namely, Change by John Waite and Better Be Good to Me. This is the Spider version right here. But then, of course, Tina Turner has a huge smash with it a few years later. And that really changes the crux of her career. She becomes a noted and celebrated songwriter. I mean, you guys know this. She's written classics like The Warrior, Simply the Best, Love is a Battlefield, Ragdoll. We want to cover all of those hits. I also want to touch on some of the great songs she wrote for people that you may not know about or that weren't the big hits. That way she doesn't have to trot out those same stories over and over. Keep it interesting. And she's very forthright with sort of not just her own place in history, but where songwriters are in the current music business. She has some really interesting thoughts about this, whether they're appreciated enough, whether they're respected enough. They're probably not, to be honest. I've been hoping to get Holly on here for years. I am so, so grateful that she agreed to talk to me. She called me from her home in L.A. And I really don't see why it's so hard to be good to me. And I don't understand what's your plan that you can't be good to me. What I can feel, I surely cannot see. Why can't you be good to me? If it is not real, I do not wish to see. Why can't you be? I believe before Spider came along, you played keyboards on the Unmasked album, and I was curious how that happened. What's the timeline on this? What came first, Unmasked or Spider? I was already in Spider when the opportunity came to play on the record, and it was probably because of it that I did. Okay. Well, let me take you back to the fact that Spider was looking for a producer. Mm. Because we were trying to get a record deal, and we were already trying to line up who would produce it, and... Three of the members in the band were very keen on Eddie Kramer, mm-hmm. who was South African, like three of the members, so they already had that kind of bond going. And, you know, Eddie Kramer, who was, I think, 
you know, famous for all the Hendrix records that he produced. And um, Ace Freely was doing a solo record, and Eddie Kramer was producing it. So once Ace heard Anton play drums on his record, he told Kiss about it, and Kiss started using Anton on... Mm -hmm their records. He was a ghost drummer. You know, mm -hmm. they didn't give him credit, but he was the drummer for the next couple of records or whatever. Right. So um, that's how we met Bill Coin, and Bill Coin started managing Spider. And as a result of that, I got to know the members of KISS. And one day I was at the record plant having nothing to do with them. I was waiting for a friend of mine in a studio who serendipitously happened to be working with Mike Chapman and had told me mm -hmm. about Mike Chapman. And he was the producer I wanted for a record because I knew he was a songwriter. And I knew that songs were important, uh, you know, when making mm -hmm. a record. So mm -hmm. I was more keen on him than Eddie Kramer, who was more of an engineer-type producer. Mm -hmm. Not to take anything away from him. but right. the, So there were these two kind of ideas floating around in the band. And I happened to be there waiting for my friend who was engineering on the Mike Chapman record. I think it was a Blondie record. And Gene walked out of the studio, and he saw me sitting there, and he said, Wait a minute, he says, you play keyboards, right? And I said, yeah. He goes, well, do you want to come in and play on one of our tracks? We need keyboards on it. And so, mm -hmm. would you do that for us? And I was like, yeah, sure, I'd love to do that. So I went in. <laughs> I played on one song. Which one? I think it was Shandy or something. I think nice. it was a song called Shandy. Love it. Say goodnight. Say goodnight. When we should say. warming up, but apparently I'd already done the take. I didn't know it, but they were in the corner, like uh, Vinnie Poncia was the producer, and he was talking to Gene and Paul, and they were sort of having this conference about it, and I saw them shaking their heads, and I thought, okay, I sucked, and um, they're trying to figure out how to tell me, and then Gene walked over, and he said, oh, what? can you clear your afternoon? And I said, um, yeah, why? He goes, well, we, that was great. We want you to play in the whole record. We've got lots of keyboards we need. So I stayed, and that's how I got on the record. Oh, right. It's an unusual sound. It's probably got more keyboards on it than any other Kiss record, you know, because they're a guitar band. That's actually my favorite Kiss album, Unmasked. Really? Yeah, I know that's not the popular opinion, but that's my favorite. Probably because I lean more toward power pop or that new wave sound anyway. Right. So that's why I was especially curious how you played on that album in particular, because that one means a lot to me. Mm -hmm. One thing I was thinking about and getting ready to talk to you is that obviously Better Be Good to Me seems to be, that was the Trojan horse, correct? Tina Turner hears this song. She thinks, I want that song. I could do wonders with that song. And I was thinking, if she had never heard that song, where do you think Holly Knight would be today? Uh, yeah, but I don't think that that's what really led to my success, to be honest. Oh. I think it certainly was one of the catalysts, but I think there were a few. I mean, right around that time, John Waite had also recorded Change. True. Which became a really big video on MTV. Mm -hmm. And whether or not she had cut the song or not, I had, at this point, moved to California and was doing mm. a lot of songwriting with Mike Chapman and... Right around that time was when I wrote Love is a Battlefield as well. So there were a lot of things that kind of happened very quickly at that same time. Got it. Okay. But had she not heard that song, then maybe she wouldn't have cut the other eight or nine that she did, you know? 
and done the best, which was really the biggest one that I had with her. True. My understanding of the timeline was that, you know, you were in Spider, you guys have Better Be Good to Me, that version is great. She hears it and she thinks, I want to do this song. And that's what launches her, partly with In Private Dancer. And that's what puts you on this radar, on everyone's radar. And then they're coming to you. But it sounds like you had kind of feelers out there prior to that, right? Exactly. Okay. It was interesting to me, too, going back and listening to the Spider version of Change, that the version, you know, these songs were, when you wrote them and, and, rec- were, and recorded them, they were for the band that you were in. They weren't intended to be these gigantic hits for other people, right? Exactly. Yeah, who knew, right? Yeah. When you hear these other versions, are you, do you, and this goes for any song you write for anybody, are you thinking... I really, I like that flourish in there. I hadn't thought of that before. Or do you prefer your versions or do you even care? Uh, well, I definitely care. <laughs> do you? Okay. <laughs> because that, you know, a lot of thought goes into even the shittiest of demos. Right. But that being said, most of the time I give a song to someone and they pretty much, they like the demos, so they try to copy them. There have been a few times where they have taken it a step further and completely changed it. And it's been kind of devastating because, you know, you get you take all this care to write a hit song and then they turn it into a single. They take like, I'm sorry, they turn it into a record track. In other words, they take whatever is yeah, like catchy yeah. or commercial and change it just because they want to put what they think is their stamp on it because there's some sort of... Mm. I don't know if it's ego or what involved, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, or mm-hmm. they might take my idea and just change it just enough to make it look like it was their idea. But, you know, I think that for the most part, my demos have remained very much intact. Um, I will say that the, when we first sent Love is a Battlefield to Neil and Pat Benatar, it was not a ballad at mm-hmm. all. It was a mid-tempo, eighth-note, epic kind of weighty song. But it was definitely not a ballad. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't really write a lot of ballads. Mm-hmm. like the demo at all we were we were horrified and really? it's not that they changed the song i mean the song was totally intact and in there they just they made it much faster and they put a lot of like bells and whistles on it as far as synthesizers and stuff which i didn't feel it needed huh. but you know a hit song is a hit song right I'm going to say something that might anger some people, but I actually think I prefer your version of Love is a Battlefield from your solo album uh-huh. to the version that came out. And maybe I feel that way because it's such a great song and I've it was just nice and refreshing to hear a different version or a different take on this song. But I love what you did on your solo album to that tune.
And I wondered if that was more what you had in mind maybe in the first place. It was more in mind what we had in the first place, although even on that version, I sped it up a little. Just, I don't know why, you know, mm-hmm. at the time, it seemed like something to do. I mean, you know, it's interesting because there's this actor who also has a great voice named Luke Evans. Yeah. And he just recorded Love is a Battlefield, and his is probably the closest to the demo that I've heard, and it's really epic sounding. Now, when you heard change, let's go back to that, because I feel like maybe, I mean, you'd know better than me, but among my friends and stuff, I feel like change is one of those songs that gets more beloved as the year goes, years go on. It was a hit back then, but then it was sort of forgotten about for a long time. And now people are going back to it thinking this song is so good. When you heard John's version and John can sing unlike anyone else, what were your thoughts on that? I loved his version. That's one of the few cases where um, I actually think his version was better yeah. than the original, because the original was kind of like new wave-ish with silly sense and stuff. Not only did he produce it and play all the guitars on it, Patty Smythe mm. sung all the backgrounds on it, and I hadn't worked with her yet either. No way. Um, and I think all those things contributed to, um, you know, a great sounding record. What's in your heart will never change. Yeah. 
I would tell anybody who's interested to go to your website, hollynight.com, because you list your top 10 favorite songs because mm-hmm. you get asked about them all the time. Yeah. And I'm going to, I want to go back and forth to some of those and maybe some of the more obscure stuff that people are less familiar with. For instance, I'm a huge Hall & Oates fan. Mm-hmm. And Ooh Yeah was the first CD I ever bought. When I turned 15 in the summer of 1988, my mom and dad took me to Musicland and said, you can pick out two CDs. Ooh, yeah. And I picked out Sgt. Pepper's and Ooh Yeah. And So Love That You Wrote is on that album. And I was curious how that came to be. I can believe that you love me The way you set this soul on fire Typical talk in the daytime At night, only hot desire I can do anything, darling Cause you take me as I am oh, Baby, there's something about us That makes it a perfect plan, yeah was Tommy Matola for like a nanosecond. And I really wanted to meet them. I was big fans and he set up a dinner and, and we met and he came over to my house after dinner and we jammed and just hung out and made plans to get together in New York. And then I was in New York writing with Bon Jovi, so I called him up and I had this whole musical idea and I just pretty much showed it to him and gave it to him. I mean, they pretty much wrote the lyrics and, uh, you know, the Mm. melody, which, to be honest, I was a bit disappointed and I thought it was kind of okay. But I thought the track was stronger and it merited like like a really good, um, a stronger melody. Mm. But, you know, I mean, Mm -hmm. I was happy they cut it. And oddly enough, there was a single on my solo record called Hard Don't Fail Me Now, which mm-hmm. Daryl fell in love with and wanted to cut it. And I said no, because I was getting ready to do a solo record. And, uh, you know, in hindsight, I wish I had said yes, because they would have done a much better version of it than I did. Well, your version is great. And Daryl sings backup on it. And he's it's he's there playing his day, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Daryl Hall singing backups to me when he's a great singer and I'm not. <laughs> oh, that's not, I don't know. I was listening back to your solo album again today to get ready to talk to you. And I thought, you know, Holly, your, your songs, so many of them, Never and Love is a Battlefield are such these power anthems in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say you, you don't have a bad voice. You just may not have a voice that's suited for a big anthem like that. You know what I mean? Well, n- not only that, but I mean, first of all, if I was born with the gift of the kind of vocals that compared to the people I work with, I would have mm-hmm. been a singer. True. <laughs> so I, I knew where my strengths were. Yeah. Although I have been, I have sung on a lot of backgrounds. Uh, like if I've written a song, I end up being asked to sing on the backgrounds, which is 
funny because I've sung backgrounds for Rod Stewart and Tina Turner, and it's, you know, I've got to tell you, it's a bit daunting and intimidating to be standing there doing background vocals with Tina Turner standing next to you, you know? (laughs) And Rod Stewart told me that he wasn't going to do the lead vocal until I did all the backgrounds, so I had to do all of those before he would do the vocal. Really? Yeah. But also, to be honest, you know, I'm not, like, particularly fond of that solo record i i think mm-hmm. i if i was going to do solo record if i ever did one again it would be a rock i mean i'm known really? for rock and i should mm-hmm. i did kind of like an r&b ish i don't even know if it's good enough to qualify as r&b but um i you know i'm more of a rocker and i'm known for doing that kind of stuff and i could have gotten away with like um the vocals more had i done that um I could see that. I was going to mention Rod Stewart. So Love Touch, I have kind of a soft spot for that song. That song is kind of hoisted up sometimes as the moment when Rod seemed to sort of sell out. Ooh, baby, I don't know why, but somehow I always seem to get tangled up in my pride. Hopefully I'm not telling you something you'd already know or that's, I hope that's not offensive or anything. I think Love Touch is a fun song. But a lot of people are like, oh, and then Rod just kept going into the schmaltz territory and Love Touch is sort of the example of him doing that. Do you ever hear that too? Do you do you know what I'm referring to? Uh, can you, what's the question again? So, okay, well, mostly I'm fear, <laughs> I'm sorry. Mostly I'm curious how you feel about Love Touch because I think that's a fun song. Um, but I, it's sort of forgotten about, I guess, sometimes in his canon, you know? Well, maybe you know more and you're being polite, but here's the deal on that. <laughs> when, I wrote, when I wrote that song for him, uh-huh. a couple of things happened. He called, his management called me up to the office. They wanted to meet me, and I came up there, and I had most of the song, all the meat of it there. I left just enough that if he wanted to co-write with me, he could. Hmm. And we got together like maybe two or three times and he didn't do anything. He was he was a lot of fun to be with and he mm-hmm. kept wanting to take breaks and, and you know, uh, <laughs> do some drugs. But <laughs> other than that, and I, I love Rod, you know, uh-huh. but he was very, ha- I said to him, you know what, let me just finish the song. And if you like it, you'll cut it. And I was thinking in my head, well, if he doesn't cut it, at least it'll still be my song without his name on it. And because sometimes that can be the kiss of death when you have a famous person on a song you co-wrote with them. Usually they haven't written anything on it. Mm-hmm. But then people look at it and they go, oh, well, if Rod Stewart didn't cut it, how good could it be? So then it just mm-hmm. kind of sits there and goes to waste, you know? Mm-hmm. So anyway, so I finished the song. I sent it to him. He loved it. He cut it. I personally love that track. Yeah. I mean, I think it's more than a fun song. I think it's a beautiful song. It's a very sincere song. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure where the wires got crossed because he loved the song and he sent me a, uh, flowers and just said, thank you so much for a great song to work with. I can't wait for it to come out. Then he did an anth- greatest anthologies record like a couple of years later. Oh, and it was a hit mm-hmm. when he needed one. And when 
This greatest anthology record came out. He, he of course, had to put it on the record because it was a hit. And it was also in a movie called Legal Eagles. I remember. Um, and he wrote on the liner notes, he said, this is probably the most embarrassing song I've ever cut. And okay. I'm thinking, <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. News to me, he never said anything to me. And, and then I started to analyze and go, well, what, what's embarrassing about it? And yeah. I thought, well, maybe he didn't get what the ethos of that song was about. It's like, imagine if you were on the phone with someone and you, you, you're in love with them and you just, you go... I'm sending you a love touch. It's like, it's sort of like a psychic, here's my love touch. You know, I can look across and give you a love touch with my brain. And maybe he thought it was like literal, like I'm a great lover kind of thing and I'm going to give you my love touch. I don't know because I never thought in those terms, but that's all I could come up with. I was kind of upset for years with him. I thought, what a two-faced fucker, you know, but... <laughs> When I ran into him, like, he was always nice. Like, he didn't remember and told me what a great song it was. It's like, did he have Alzheimer's or what? And I saw him at the premiere for the Tina Turner musical in London. And he was sitting behind me, and he kept patting me on the back and horsing around and asking me who wrote what, and then pretending he knew. He asked me once, who wrote that song? And he knew damn well I wrote the song. Uh But he was just being very cozy and comfy, and I thought, like, is he even aware he wrote that? You know? (laughs) But I think it's a great song. I do too. Yeah, I sung all the backgrounds on that. I played every instrument except for the guitars. And the drums are programmed. And Mike Picaro played bass on it. Wow. You know it don't matter Who's right or who's wrong Guess we're gonna find out If this love is strong Just give me a chance To win back your trust Well, I I knew that he had claimed that he was embarrassed about that song, and I didn't know where that had come from. And anything that you can ask me, I'll probably know what's been said about it, so I can (laughs) cut right to the chase. That's true. Okay. You know, you can't be that successful and out there without someone taking shots at you. Good point. It's just, it's it's a rite of passage. Yeah. It's still, to me, a very romantic, happy song. Yeah. I mean, it's in my musical, and every time I hear it, I feel happy. Good, me too. Um, Okay, I want to talk to you about Device. I had Paul Engelman on here. He's got a great voice too.
I, my understanding of the device sort of project, this is according to Paul, I hope I'm not stirring anything up, is that you were sort of tired of being behind the scenes and you wanted to be more front and center leading your own band. And so you formed device and hanging on a heart attack is a great song that comes out. But Paul being the lead singer sort of causes you're back in the same situation where you're writing songs and you're not the one singing them and someone else is getting the FaceTime. And I believe there may have been a drug problem going on at the time. Is any of this true? How do you look back on device? Well, that's complete bullshit, <laughs> is all I can tell you. That is such a crock of shit, and it's not true at all. Okay. Um, it wasn't that I was frustrated because I wasn't the singer. I spent two and a half years looking for a star, a real singer, someone that would walk in a room and just own it. I went to London. I, I mean, I went to New York, everywhere. And I started to get sort of impatient, and so did Mike Chapman, who was the producer, Mm-hmm. And so we started cutting the record, and we cut the songs in the key that he was singing all the songs on. So we were hoping like hell that we were going to find someone with the same vocal range. Mm-hmm. We finally got a tape of Paul, and in a generic way, he looked great, and in a generic way, he sung great. But he wasn't a rock star. It's like everything had to be spoon-fed to him, mm-hmm. how to sing. I mean, he listened to all the demos, and Mike wanted him to sing them that way. And any time we asked him to stretch out and sort of make it his own, he couldn't. So I sort of got tired. It was a lot of work, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, if I could have had the perfect singer, it would have been like Luke Spiller from The Struts. <laughs> That's really what I was looking for. Nice. Good one. And, you know, I mean, drug problems or not, That's everybody did drugs. Maybe he didn't. Uh, you know, he was comes from a Mormon family, and, yeah. you know, they were very, very straight. Uh, we didn't really have much camaraderie or anything in common with him, Gene, who I'm still very close to, and him. And, you know, he started acting like, you know, a little bit like a rock star without earning it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to be more up front and center in as much as I had one of those guitars. Mm-hmm. And I was one of the few people that actually made it look cool because they were kind of silly looking. Mm-hmm. But that made me able to walk around and do stuff. When it came to interviews, nobody wanted to interview him because he didn't have a story. So mm-hmm. for him to say that I was, you know, begruntled or whatever, if that's <laughs> the way he, maybe I'm interpreting it wrong. A little bit. It's not true at all. Okay. Yeah, no, it's not true at all. That's in his That's in his mind. And I ended up letting him go. And my biggest regret is that I didn't look for another singer. But I was so burnt out at that point. Yeah. I wish I had continued because the band was great. You know, the band was musically sophisticated. And, and, you know, I mean, I'm classically trained. And the guitarist, Gene, is to this day one of the best virtuoso guitars I've worked with. I mean, he's amazing at soloing. Yeah. I'm so sick of guitar solos, but I never, with him, it's never like that. It's not noodling. It's intelligent, musical inspiration to me. And we wanted that in a singer. We wanted someone that was an equal, but, you know, like, and also he used to smile so much in photos, this big toothy smile Uh that we were kind of a dark band. And I said to him, can you maybe not look so goofy all the time and maybe just look a little more serious? And he took that to the ninth degree. So everybody always looks at that video of who says and uh-huh. wonders why he looks so angry and demonic. It's like he didn't get it. You know, he missed <laughs> the whole point if you look at it, you know. Okay. Okay. So it sounds like it was more of a fit problem. It was t- 
totally a fit problem. Okay. It was it was a total fit problem. And the thing is, I've worked with some of the greatest singers, and to me, they're not all technically great singers, which he had great vocal technique, you know. Mm-hmm. A lot of it has to do with attitude. I mean, isn't that what rock and roll is? It's sex, totally. drugs, and rock and roll. And I know that. So it's embarrassing for me to have a lead singer that's not the real thing. Yeah. It, it, was, it was embarrassing for me, and that's why I said, like, where was the Luke Spiller? Do you know that band, The Struts? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That was the kind of guy that we would have been so big, you know. We would uh-huh. have been, yeah. Huh. The music was great. It is. I love that album. And I got to be honest, I love Paul's voice. I think his voice is stellar. A lot of people do. Yeah. A lot of people do. But I can totally see what you mean. I mean, he's a clean-cut Mormon guy, you know? and Exactly. He's not going to be the sleazy rock star. And the reason you love his vocals is because we spoon-fed him. We literally uh. told him how to sing. He didn't walk in there and just sing. We made him learn the demos. And we told him how he wanted, he sings, he sounds, I mean, if you were to hear the demos of Mike Chapman, mm. um, you'd think it was him. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I've always wondered what that story was. Um, all right, let's talk about Kiss for a minute. Hide Your Heart is one of my daughter's favorite Kiss song. My daughter is 12. Mm-hmm. And um, I turned my kids on to Kiss years ago when they were little. And Hot in the Shade is her favorite Kiss album. And so she was very excited that I was going to ask you about the writing of Hide Your Heart. Where did that come from? What's the story there? That's a funny story, actually. <laughs> um... Paul came over to my house to write, and and we knew each other quite well. You guys dated, right? We dated for a while, yeah. Okay, okay. And at this point, we weren't. We were just you know, friends. Mm-hmm. He came over, and he wanted to write with me. And I remember I played him this idea that I was making up on the spot, and we recorded it. I recorded, he recorded it. And I basically sung him the entire melody to the chorus, even the hooky part afterwards. So I went... Uh, something like na 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 na. Yeah. Hey hey hey. Do 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 do. Which is the same melody as better hide your heart, better hold on tight. Right. Right. Yes. So we didn't really do anything with that day. Then he calls me up like. About a month later, and he goes, um, I got together with Desmond Child, and we turned that idea you had into a song, and I want to know if you think you should get credit if you made <laughs> a contribution. <laughs> now, if he had sent it to me and there was no connection, I would have said, yeah, you know, I don't need, any, I don't need anything. <laughs> but I was like, are you, are you fucking kidding me? That's the song. I said, yes, I want credit. I thought, yeah, I, I was like, I was actually like, I was blown away that he would yeah. ask me something like that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. What a ballsy move. Yeah. You were the germ of the idea. All of that. No way. I know. My favorite part of the song is the na 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 hey 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 stuff. And there you go. Yeah. Were those meant to be replaced at some point? Were they just filler words? Or did you feel strongly like that's what this song needed? I didn't know. It just came out of me as like okay. most of shit does. And, right. and 
you know, I sung it that way, and that's kind of how it happens when you're writing. You know, you accidentally, this shit comes out of you because you're channeling something, and that's part of the process, you know? Yeah, that's the magic of that song. It's a great song either way, but that little bit is what makes it even more memorable. Good move. Yeah, and even if you didn't have that and you had the melody, it's the chorus. Yeah. People sing. They don't walk away singing that Johnny has that done. Or maybe they do. Maybe your daughter does. <laughs> Although, you know, that part's good, too. I'm not taking anything away from what they did sure. at all. That's funny. Okay. Your number one favorite song you've ever written, apparently, is Invincible. I love that song, too. Thank you. Why is that song number one? You know, it's empowering and it's a take no shit attitude, which has always kind of been my mission statement, I guess. Yeah. To believe in yourself and, and fight back. This bloody road remains a mystery. about fighting with someone as much as fighting for something. I was given a script and I knew that this, what the story was, so that helped. But I also like it musically. I, I love, you know, I, I love when I come up with melodies that sort of jump around like da 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 da. You know, those kind of melodies, I find them to be interesting and they take great singers to do it, to pull it off, you know. I love everything about it except for when the record was made. I didn't like the solo uh, in the middle section because it was just kind of, it just took a left turn and again, I, that was not in the demo and I was like, what the fuck? You know, it's like, mm -hmm. Neil likes to do that. He likes to, you know, switch things up, which, you know, fair enough, but I just thought it wasn't necessary in the middle. Yeah. It's like when that part comes on, I want to turn down the record. Boy, you are anti-solos. They were just such a part, no, a no, natural part. No, 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 part. I'm not anti-solos. I'm not okay. anti-solos. Okay. I was anti the key change. Uh, the key that he picked was very atonal and mm. ugly sounding to me. Okay. No, I love solos. I mean, that's what I'm saying. Gene Black yeah, good point. is a great soloist because he doesn't just noodle and show off his prowess. He plays intelligent beautiful guitar melody so i'm yeah. not against solos at all i just don't like when it's wanking off you know that makes sense yeah yeah one of the great i think unsung pat songs from the 80s is sometimes good guys finish first from the secret of my success soundtrack and you wrote that one too mm -hmm. what's the story there i love that whole soundtrack by the way there's lots of good stuff on there yeah there is right yeah um again i got a script for the movie okay and it started with my bass line, which a lot of songs start with my bass lines, you know, the da -na 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 -na, da -na 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 da 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 It's a great bass line. 
Yeah, I like that song a lot, and uh, I don't think it gets enough attention. I'm trying, if you can't tell, I want to sprinkle in the songs everyone knows with some of the songs they may not remember or didn't know were yours or whatever. Sure. Um, One that kind of shocks me, to be honest, because I just wouldn't put you two together, and that was Babies by Real Life. I've had David Sterry on here. He's a lovely guy. But I would not have guessed that, you know, how did this partnership happen? Um, I wrote that song with Michael DeBars around the same time that I wrote Obsession. We just wrote a bunch of stuff together. Yeah. And I also wrote it, the third writer was Mike Chapman. And, you know, because, see, Mike Chapman owned, he was the president of Dreamland Records. And so Spider was signed to him, and then he had Mm -hmm. other artists, and Michael DeBars was a label mate. He introduced us. And so we started writing stuff together, which is how we wrote... We wrote a song for Smokey called Looking Daggers. We wrote Bleeding Babies, which was Michael's title. Michael DeBar's title. There's two Michaels there. And um, we demoed it. And I don't know. I, that's, that's the end of the story with that one. I think our publishers just sent it to them in Australia. Mm-hmm. And because Mike's Australian, maybe that had some mm. sort of connection. I don't know. Okay. Um, and again, it was a bass line that was like do 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 first few songs as we established like better be good to me and change they were your own and somebody else came along and covered them and i know that happens in some cases but more often than not would you say that you are writing for an assignment someone comes to you and say we need you to write a song for pat benatar or whoever or are you just writing all the time and people are saying i want i need some holly knight what have you got i think it's both um i wish it was that way where they just say oh we're looking for a song and we want you to do that so mm-hmm. when that happens i usually nail it you know mm-hmm. Like, I remember when Tina Turner was in the Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, Mm -hmm. and Roger Davies, her manager, called me up and said, we want you to write a song for Tina. Are you down with that? I was like, yeah, I'd love to do that. I mean, I was a Mad Max fan anyway, Mm -hmm. and I was thrilled that they called me. I think that was like the second song that I had written for her after Better Be Good To Me. So obviously that set up a nice relationship.
and I don't particularly like doing this because sometimes I write some of the greatest songs I've ever written and they never get cut. Mm-hmm. I just go in the room to write, you know, and I think, oh, I want to pitch this to so-and-so. And then it used to be a lot easier to pitch songs. Now there are so many gatekeepers. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of these these artists who will do outside tunes, that the whole setup is very, I want to say, posse-driven, where they have a certain group of people that they use and nobody else. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it's really changed in that way, too. Do you find that there is still room or space in today's music business for a Holly Knight? Or do you find that the Max Martins, so to speak, of the world have taken over, um, farmed out, that's probably the wrong word, but songwriting in general, that do you still find a place for yourself out there? Well, I'm not too worried about myself because I've had a great career and I continue to reinvent myself and find other things to do. Mm-hmm. And I'm still writing quite a bit, not as much as I used to because of, you know, the situation that I just described. Um, and for no other reason, it's not because I can't write or don't love to write. Mm-hmm. You know, there comes a point where you're stockpiling songs and it's just like, you know, what's it going to take? Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter that I'm in the Songwriting Hall of Fame. It doesn't matter that I've sold, you know... 300 million copies of records it's just you know it's sort of a natural thing where like with each new generation there are the flavors of the month and that's going to happen it's already happening to max martin will be someone else that'll come along you know yeah the problem with uh, like the max martins and the dr luke's and all that is that they farm themselves out so much that all the artists start to have this homogenous sound. They don't sound like it's not like, oh, this is Taylor Swift and this is Katy Perry and this is Pink. Half the time, it's like any one of the songs could go to, you could interchange it because it's become the Max Martin sound now. And I think it's made between that and then like the shows like American Idol and The Voice, the business has changed so much and become very homogenous and sort of you know, it's a fast-moving corporate thing. It's not like anymore, like, people will even really buy records. You know, the whole idea of records is gone. It's like, let me pick out my playlist and pick my favorite song from this artist and this one, which doesn't ever give you a chance to go deep into any one artist and say, like, you've been doing this whole conversation. I love this song and I love this song because you've taken the time to listen to more work by any one artist. But today's generation doesn't do that, you know? Whatever is spoon-fed to them that goes on their playlist, and very rarely do you have the loyalty of fans where they love everything about a band, you know? So going back to your question, I think it's much harder now to get your name out there, first of all. I mean, let's say you write a song. Unless someone really wants to look it up, you know, they stream the song. It doesn't list the songwriter. It doesn't list the producer. It doesn't list the musicians, all those people. I mean, it takes a village to make any one artist happen. And none of those people are getting their name out there. And if you don't get credit, you don't have the ability to get your name out there to get more work. You know, yeah. that's the first part. The second part is the money sucks, mm-hmm. you know, like the rest of the world. It For songwriters, it really hasn't caught up with inflation or anything. I mean, I think when I was making records in the 80s, we got like four cents a record mm. or four cents a tune on a record. And if you co-wrote it with someone, you had to split that. So, oh. I mean, if you did the math, you had to sell millions of records to make a living. Now with like Pandora and Spotify, where music is gotten in bulk and then sort of divvied out to the artists, Mm -hmm. it's very hard for them to make money. So I wouldn't want to be a songwriter right now trying to make it. Yeah. 
But at the same time, I don't want to kill or squash anybody's dreams. So I would say for writers that are out there, like try and get your song in a movie or a TV show where you can make some money. And then if they like your work, they'll continue to use more of it. Mm -hmm. And then you can start getting songs and movies because you can get sync fees. And um, I think that's one avenue that can still be explored and be lucrative, you know? Yep. Um, or try to go yeah. viral. I don't know. <laughs> it, it, it's just, it's difficult. It is. You know? it, it is. It's not impossible, though. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, you mentioning, you know, needing to sell hundreds of millions of albums and luckily you did, you know, and so you, and a lot of these songs are remain sort of evergreen, you know, simply the best and love sure. is a battlefield. I mean, not everyone can say that. In fact, I was thinking while I was talking with Charlie Midnight, he's another one of my favorite songwriters ever. So many great songs that I love, but as great as he is, he doesn't have the perennials as many, maybe, you know, living in America for James Brown or something, there aren't as many perennials in his catalog as I feel like there should be. And so even someone as great as he is, isn't maybe, maybe he's not, I don't know, I'm, I'm projecting, but enjoying the spoils of all those years of success and hard work the way that he deserves. Yeah, I agree. There were some co-writers on that song, and I met one of them. I won't even say who it is, but mm -hmm. it was a woman, and she'd never done anything before or after, and I think was maybe in the room when it was written. Mm -hmm. And there was nothing songwriter about her, you know? And so I feel bad for Charlie, because I know he's a legitimate writer. But yeah. um, the, the thing that's great when you have evergreen tunes is that they just keep getting used over and over. And more than any other time, my songs are getting licensed and used and reused all the time. And, you know, the funny thing is, uh, with some of them, I mean, the situation's different now because a lot of my copyrights are, have reverted back to me. Mm. Um, but a lot of times, if someone wanted to use a song of mine, the publishers wouldn't bother to whoever it was for any given song because they've all sort of spread out or been yeah. sold or resold or... Or some of them I didn't own the copyrights to, and then so anyway, um, a lot of times I would get covers and I would not know about it unless someone told me about mm -hmm. it. You know, I'd get a like an email like, "Congratulations, your song is so great on on that show Glow. I love that show. It's the theme song." And I'm like, "What?" Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> or, or I happen to be watching a movie, and this has happened to me maybe in the last couple of years, maybe twenty times, oh. and the song is in there, and it's then I have to go and check: Did we license that? Yeah. Did you license? That? And they're like, "Oh yeah, we license it." So the point is, when you're a songwriter and you write a song, the first time it gets released, you get to say, of course, who cuts the song. Mm -hmm. It's an all favored nations uh, is is what it's called. Once it's cut, anybody in the world can cut it. They just need to pay you, so they have to license the song, and they usually go through something like the Harry Fox Agency or whoever is handling the, you know, the rights or whatever. That's just for recording the song. If you want to put a song in, say, a movie or a video, then you have to contact the publisher. You don't go to Harry Fox, and you have to negotiate a sync fee. So as long as I'm getting paid, they don't tell me. You know, it's mm -hmm. just like I have a neighborhood watch out there for like my songs, you know, that, that let me know. <laughs> you start getting tweets or uh, texts. Hey, I heard one of your songs in such and such a movie. I hope you're getting paid for it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But now I like I've gotten back the copyrights to some of my biggest songs. And so I'm a, I'm a happy camper. Good. Um, OK, so I'm just going to ask you point blank. What of all your songs provides the best mailbox money? Oh, that would easily be the best. Is it? Okay, that's what I thought. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's, I figured out, believe it or not, um, you know, I sold a piece of my catalog because I wanted the, I wanted to exploit it more. And so I sold a piece of it. Uh, exploit is a bad word. I wanted to, you know, have it out there in sure. different, you know, different, um, I guess venues, if you will, yeah, you know, yeah. so I, I sold part of it. And in doing that, I, we had to do an accounting and it turned out that 80% of my catalog was the best. Really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it gets used so much for so many things. It's, I think it's like the number one corporate tune in America for like every corporate event, <laughs> the Olympics, you know, yeah. it's like the Australian rugby theme yeah. theme. Every Australian knows it. It's, it's the rugby theme in Ireland you know, I mean, so many people have retired to it. Derek Jeter and yes. um, Wayne Gretzky have retired to it. You know, it, it's used in car commercials, and it's it's crazy. And, you know, you, you can't even plan something like that. It was just a gift from the heavens. It was a, We wrote this song. I loved it. I didn't. I wasn't, like, as crazy or as excited about it as I was other tunes, but, you know, it was cut. At first, it was cut by Bonnie Tyler. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love her voice, but I was like, yeah, it sounds nice. But then when I heard Tina wanted to cut it, she got a hold of us and she said, us meaning me and my co-writer, Mike, and said, I want a bridge. Mm. She's just like very demanding though. I think, mm-hmm. I want a bridge. I want a bridge. <laughs> and I want it to go up in key so that I can really, you know, just cut loose at the end. And so we got together and we wrote, we rewrote it and had to re-register it after she, um, you know, after she, after it had already been out when she recorded it. But she was right. I mean, it's it's definitely better because of it. It allowed her to make it her own, and then that's what made it the anthem that it is. Mm -hmm. 80%. Wow. I would not have guessed, but that makes sense, I guess. I had um, Kimberly Rue on here, and he's the guy, he's a guy named Kimberly, from Katrina and the Waves, who wrote Walking on Sunshine. And that song makes millions 
and uh, you probably know this. I think about the the best and Walking on Sunshine as being these songs that are just songs. They st- you know they started out as things on the radio like you would hear anything else, but they've been co opted by corporations for all the reasons and the the celebrations and the moments you just mentioned, and they become like theme songs or wallpaper or some and it, I. I don't mean that. To... You know what? If you if if you check out those songs, I mean, there's a reason why that is. They're very good songs, and you've just you've struck like a nerve. Yeah. In you know pop culture and 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 in culture in in general, but I, I'm sure, like me, they didn't plan to do it. They no. just sat down and write a, a song, a great That's song. It. You know. Yep. That's it. I actually wrote that song for Paul Young, and he and his manager passed on it. Paul Young was supposed to sing the best, and he passed. I'm so glad he didn't, though, because Tina just, you know, it's it's like, it's she's such a strong singer. You know, yeah. he's a, I mean, I was obviously a fan, or I wouldn't have written a song for him, but um, it worked out for the best, you know. Oh, I just realized I made a pun. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. <laughs> nice. Wow, Paul Young, that's some great trivia. I had no idea. I like to tease him about it when I run into him now, and he always seems to be annoyed. Yeah, I would imagine. Um, and there's a good Hall & Oates tie, because he did have success with um, Every Time You Go Away. Have you ever heard the version that Hall & Oates do? Oh, yeah, yeah. Now that, I mean, that was a beautiful vocal. Mm-hmm. Really, just, I mean, he wrote the song, you know. Yeah. for a keyboard player and I almost auditioned and and then I chickened out because I thought I'm not ready to go on the road I really want to pursue I wanted to be in my own band you know but when I met him for the first time I said you know I I almost auditioned he says I remember that he says because I remember it was a girl and I was really curious to see what you were like wow you could have been the 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 keyboard player for hollow notes (laughs) oh my gosh how different the world would be if that were the case. Right. Yeah. And I would have gotten the gig because I, I, you know, yeah. I know what my strengths and my weaknesses are, but I, I am a, I am a really accomplished musician. I mean, uh-huh. I play, I started playing classical when I was four and I, my mom was grooming me to be a concert pianist and I used to give like concerts and recitals and I still play today and I love it. I love classical music and somehow it's seeped into my, you know, my music anyway so well so let me ask you this if do you think considering what a fantastic songwriter you are if you had joined that band do you think you would have been able to find a place as a contributor from a songwriting perspective in there or do you think you would have had to have left at some point to oh no there's no doubt in my mind i would have started writing with him i oh. knew before i met hall and oates actually i didn't meet john oates i just met i just okay. met daryl but I had said to Tommy Matola, just introduce us, just put us in the same room because I know yes. musically he will fall in love with me. And I was that confident. I mean, I'm, I have lots of other 
you know, vulnerabilities. And, sure. But when it comes to that, yeah, there's no doubt in my mind we would have, God knows what we would have written. Oh, you know? my God. I want to know now. You two should pair up for some kind of album now. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That would be great. What do you think is the hallmark of a great Holly Knight song? There's this idea of like battling or fighting or fighting for a cause or whatever. Do you think that's it? What is your thing when people say, I need Holly Knight on this? What are they needing? What do they want? I think I write things that are catchy and have a lot of hooks, not just vocally, but musically. And um, I think that's part of it. And I think that they're, you know, they're guitar, for the most part, guitar driven and, and edgy, which is kind of, you know, uh, it's hard to find that not only in, in coming from a woman, but from anybody, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's easy to write a song that's very artsy, and I've done them, you know, where they're not commercial at all, and nobody really gives a shit about them. And then it's easy to write really commercial stuff that has no content to it. But to write something that has both, mm-hmm. that's outside of the box, but still very catchy, that's... I mean, you know, the word pop comes from popular, and what mm-hmm. makes something popular usually is something unique that you haven't heard before, and, you know, you want to sing along with it. So, I mean, I write lots of different kinds of songs, too, especially lately, but, yeah, um, yeah they're a little bit more com- complex at times, and other times not so much. I mean, I just wrote, recently I wrote one of my favorite songs, and everybody I play to loves it, yet it hasn't... It hasn't gotten cut yet. Mm. Um, in fact, I did an interview with uh, Mark Goodman. You remember the, the VJ? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So I just did an interview with him um, in November up at Sirius, and he actually played the song. And it's it's an anagram. It's A M F Yo Yo, which stands for Adios, motherfucker. You're on your own. <laughs> me started i'm gonna talk about it you have a way with me that i don't like no doubt about it for every lie you told me and every night you owe me you drank your way through every day and changed your story on me Very commercial tune. That's the funny thing. It's like you. It is so infectious. Oh, that's fantastic! So when you write a song like that. Is it like an APB bulletin to everyone? Hey guys, Holly Knight has a new song. Who wants it? Who's right for it? Or you? How do you get that song out there? It's hard. I mean, I, I, you know, I want to. I try to get it to. Well, I won't even tell you the, the big artists that I wanted to get it to. But like, you know, their managers so often are so full of shit. You know, yeah. I mean, they're people that basically they have a job managing someone big, but they've really accomplished nothing. And there you are with your hat in your hand, trying to get them to even write you back. Yeah. And um, and it's really obnoxious being the fact. Like I said, I'm in the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Yeah. I've written lots of hits and if the artists themselves knew the songs i'd written they'd probably jump in a heartbeat but it never even gets that far as them you know yeah 
I think Miley Cyrus would be great on that song. Yes, she has just the kind of edge. I even think Adele would be, but you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, but because I think she's actually she's British, and even though she's very polite and all that, I think she probably has a complete potty mouth. You know it. Yep. I mean, I have a clean version of the song, but nobody's interested in that. <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> I want to ask you about Just Between You and Me from Lou Graham. I love that song. His solo career is really excellent. At least those two albums are. You know, I guess because of his health problems and stuff, you don't get to hear them as much. Staring at each other with accusing eyes Keep our voices low And don't act surprised If the word gets out Yeah, that's alright And Lou, I mean, talk about voices. One of the great rock voices ever. He is one of the greatest rock voices ever. I mean, he really, really is. And it was very unfortunate that he had the health issues that he did because he probably would have gone on to have a bigger solo career, Mm -hmm. I think. up and said he was making a record. He was in California, somewhere in the valley, and he wanted to get together and write, and it was as simple as that. And I had uh, a good part of that song, like that idea, already kicking around, but I didn't have the chorus. And we pretty much wrote it in one day, except for the bridge, which he went and finished off. Mm. But I kind of had the uh, the melody to the verse, and I even had that, but that's all right, you know, mm-hmm. and he really liked that, so he kept it. You should know better now, that's all right. And it, it really is as simple as that, and I would have loved to have worked more with him. I saw him when I got inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, because he was inducted with Mick Jones that year. Good. As was Steven Tyler and Joe Perry, so it was a really fun year, because it was like a rock and roll high school reunion. I hadn't seen these guys in like, you know, 20 years, so... Yeah. And I'd also written with Bernie Talbot, and he got a special award that year with Elton, so. Excellent. It was a fun year. But anyway, we talked and said that we were going to get together and write some more, and it just hasn't happened, and it's only because of geographical logistics. I mean, he lives in Rochester, New York, mm-hmm. which is not exactly a place I ever intend to go to, <laughs> certainly not in the winter. <laughs> But, you know, he's out in L.A. I would write with him. I would always, forever, I would write with him. And he's such a gentleman. He's a decent, nice guy. Good, he seems like He is. I mean, you know, he. I heard an interview he did with someone else that I had done an interview with, and he was very serious, and he had certain things to say about Foreigner that weren't Mm -hmm. necessarily, you know, um, pleasant, but they were all true, and I gave him a lot of credit for being honest about it. But, yeah, yeah, he's a deep thinker, you know. Yeah. I think um, from the outside looking in, I, I worry that he may have gotten screwed a little bit in all of the foreigner business dealings, mm-hmm. probably enough, not enough credit or royalties or whatever from Mick in the process. Yeah, I, I think that's pretty much a gist of it. And also just the fact that he wanted to be involved more in, in the writing and, mm-hmm. and, you know, how they, they, you know, they, he went off and did a, the solo thing and they got pissed off and pretty much fired him from what I could tell. Yeah. Um, and then they begged him to come back. So, you know. It's unfortunate. 
it's hard to be in a band. I got to tell you, it's like it's like a it's like a horrible marriage, and it's very very rare when you find bands that are like the best of friends. Um, but you know, like like in many marriages, you mm-hmm. you figure that it's worth sticking it out, and you work out your differences, and you basically don't socialize. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when you're not working, you try and get as far away from each other as you can. Yeah. You know. I mean, if you look at the personality, it's like Kiss. It's like Gene and Paul, I don't think they're best friends, but I think they've found a place where they appreciate each other and they understand that it works. Mm-hmm. And I don't think they vacation together, no. but I mean, Jesus, it's been many years. You know? Right. Since starting this podcast almost five years ago, I'm, I've learned that so much, just how difficult it is to keep a group of people together. And outsiders like me think being a rock star seems like the best job in the world. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't you do whatever you have to do to be a rock star. Isn't that what everyone is always aspiring to be? Mm -hmm. But you learn that it's just too difficult, whether it's for social reasons or financial reasons, or it's just too much of a grind. You know, I I wasn't getting the foothold that I needed, and so I eventually quit. Um, It's a very different animal being on your side of the business versus, you know, an outsider looking in. Sure. Well, I also think that what comes with the territory, you know, we think, what is it, the right side of our brain? Yeah. The artistic people. Mm-hmm. And and that makes us sometimes socially retarded. Mm. And, you know, it's like, <laughs> just because someone's talented doesn't mean they don't have a lot of issues. And more than likely, they have a lot of issues. Mm-hmm. And if they have different personalities and they're thrown in a room where they have to basically bunk together and sleep on a bus together, I mean, you just, after a while, you know, someone does or says something and you just want to, you know, smash their face and <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, um... There's a couple of bands out there where they mutually respect and love each other, and I really, I admire that so much when you see people talking about their band members like they're brothers. Right. Yeah, there's a few of them out there, but not as many as you'd think. Okay, I gotta gotta ask, you mentioned uh, Aerosmith. I believe I've heard the story of Ragdoll, that it was originally Rag something else, or it was not meant... What? Ragweed. Ragweed, is that it? So tell us the Ragdoll. No, 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 I'm kidding. It wasn't Ragweed. (laughs) Ragdoll, living in a movie. Hot tramp, daddy's little cutie. He's so fine, I never see you leaving by the back door. couldn't remember exactly what the story was, but tell me the story of Ragdoll. I mean, it was Ragtime, which makes you think of Scott Joplin. Very true. Um, well, you know, again, I know there are things out there where a lot of people have said, oh, you know, Stephen and Joe say that Holly Knight didn't do jack shit on that tune. And, you know, I've given them plenty of opportunity to say whatever they want to me, and they've never said that. So what happened was John Kolodner, who was A&Ring their record, you know, he just signed them to a new deal at Gaffin. He was a fan of mine, and he asked me if I would write with him. And at this point, they were, like, their career was almost over. They had just burned every bridge. They were junkies. Around this time was when they had gotten clean and sober, and they wanted a fresh new start, and that's when they signed with Gaffin. And so John asked me if I would work on this tune that they had that he said, I think it's a hit, but it's just missed the mark. And because it's missed the mark, it's never going to be a hit. It's not going to be a single. 
and would you listen to it and tell me what you think? So I listened to it, and I agreed with him. And I said, well, let me think about it. I said, have you talked to the band? Because the last thing I want to do is walk in and be like a doctor fix it, and they're not into it. I said, no, that's like... I don't want to be in that position. And also, I don't like to write songs like that anyway. I'm very mm. hands-on. I like to write from the very beginning. I don't like it if someone gives me a track and says, will you write the vocals and the lyrics? I mean, I can do it, but part of who I am is it's the music, you know? Oh, interesting. So um, he said, no, no, I talked to Stephen, and he's going to call you, so just talk to him, and, you know, we'll figure out something, we'll send you up there or whatever. So Stephen called, and for two weeks he called me every day, like clockwork, and we would talk for hours about everything. Mm-hmm. And I again, I asked him if he was cool with, you know, me sort of seeing what I could do. And he said, no, no, I think it's a good idea. I'm, we're definitely, I'm open to it or whatever. And so, uh, you know, I didn't want to change that much because I thought it was great. Like, you know how I was talking before about people that will want to put their stamp on something and they'll change it just to feel like they made a contribution? Yeah. I mean, it's, think of like it's so much easier to build a house from the ground up than a remodel. Very true. And that's kind of what this was. And did I change a lot of the lyrics? No. I came up with Rag, Rag Doll which gets said a million times in the song, so it's mm-hmm. valid. And I changed some of the words at the end with him. And Hot Tramp, I mean, there were like little things here and there, and they flew me up there. Um, we went over the lyrics together. Um, I remember we were lying on a floor in the studio just hanging out, right, working the vocals, and then he went in and sung it that day. Really? He called me up like a week later. He said, okay, but discussed it with the band. Here's what we think is a fair percentage for you. And he told me, and I said, that's exactly what I was thinking, and I wouldn't want more than that. I'm, I'm just thrilled to have my name next to yours. Good. And the reason that I did this, the whole reason was because I was, I was hoping it was a chance to meet him, and then we could mm. write together some more. But the record took off so fast that we never had that opportunity. And then after that, for a certain point, it just sort of, even when I saw him at the Songwriter Hall of Fame, you know, I really wanted to sort of ask him, do you feel blah, 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 you know? But he kept saying to me, and I saw him about a month ago, too. I saw them play in Vegas, and he said, yeah, we wrote that great song together, you know, and that's the beginning and end of it. Huh. I wonder why these people seem hesitant to interact with you or something. Are are they, I don't know, do do artists like this that are successful, do they not... Are they not always grateful to some of the people who, like Rod or Aerosmith, that they you know, wrote these songs? They are never grateful. Really? They are never grateful. And I never used to really think about it until recently. Oh, my God. Yeah. You know, it's horrible. It's like the, the songwriter is like basically like, on the one hand, they say you're royalty because without the song, we have nothing. And then on the other, they treat you like shit, you know? Yeah. I mean, I'm going through this with the Tina Turner musical right now, to be honest. Mm. I have three songs in it. And I'm also an investor, so I get all the, you know, the reviews and the interviews. Yeah. And it came out in November. We're now talking, this is January. I have never seen one interview where they mention the songwriter. Really? What? Not one. Nothing. And, you know, come on. If you took the word music out of musical, what do you have? (laughs) A.L.? A.L.? And, you know, it's interesting because, I, you know, I, I was at the premiere, and across from me, um, 
after the lights went down, everybody sat down, then Tina came in, and she was ushered by a bunch of bodyguards and lanterns. They were holding lanterns, and, uh-huh. you know, that Oprah was with her and Gail King, and she was in the aisle, she was in the same row across from the aisle, and I never even got to say hello or talk to her because mm-hmm. during intermission, they took her out, and then after the show, she didn't go to the after party. I never had a chance to really talk to her, you know? Yeah. And there's this, there's this one thing that went viral where when Simply the Best comes in the musical, everybody in the, in the theater stood up for the first time and everybody's singing the words and there was a thing with Oprah and Tina and Gail singing all the words to the song and I'm looking at this going, are you even interested in knowing who wrote the song? Because it wasn't Tina. Yeah. You know? And then my publishers have pointed out to me like her book she has a book out, and every chapter begins with the name of a song that she cut, and then the lyrics, and they're in quotes. Mm-hmm. And there are no songwriting credits in the whole thing. And it really kind of implies that she wrote the songs. Yeah. Which I don't think it's necessarily even coming from her, but I think as an artist, like most artists, they don't give a shit. And I think that they would prefer that the public thinks they wrote the songs. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And this goes on every single time. And then even in the program, it's like everybody's mentioned on the main page, you know, even like the wig maker and the set designer. Uh-huh. The songwriters are shoved in the back all together in the program book, like as an afterthought. Really? I mean, you're talking about, you're talking about, okay, Proud Mary. I think yeah. most people would think that Proud Mary was written by Ike and Tina Turner. No. John Fogarty. Absolutely. And then, you know, Bono wrote the, the gold finger or not the gold finger what was golden eye yeah mark knopfler like we're all shoved at the back you know and this goes on and on all the time and i i i think it's really unfair to songwriters i also think you know talking about musicals they call it a jukebox when it's a musical that has lots of hit songs in it so if it's like say motown or rock of ages or beautiful jersey boys billy joel had one yeah this term came, I think, from critics, and personally, I think it's insulting because jukebox implies it's like fast food. Mm. And, you know, whether it was written for the musical or before that, someone took a lot of time to write a great song, okay? Yeah. And so the proper term would be to call it a catalog musical. And I think what they need to do at the Tonys is they need to create a new category called uh, you know, catalog musicals because yeah. there's a lot of them and whether the critics like it or not, it's keeping Broadway alive. Okay. Totally. And so I think, you know, just movement wise, I really sort of feel like I, I, I wanted to put that out there, even in this interview that, you know, songwriters deserve acknowledgement. Yeah. You know, if the wig maker can get an acknowledgement then the fucking songwriters need to, you know, <laughs> No kidding. I, you named all those songs. It shocks me that on the front of the playbill, or at least on the inside cover, it doesn't say, you know, the Tina musical featuring songs by yeah. legends like Holly Knight, John Fogarty, Bono. You know what I mean? I know nothing. That seems a no brainer. I know. Oh. It's crazy. I know the story of obsession for Animotion and everything. I am curious about iEngineer.
that was the first single off their second album, which uh, looked like it was going to do okay, and then the album kind of fell away. The label decided they weren't going to get behind it anymore. had Bill Wadhams on here a few years ago. We talked about it a little bit. What does I Engineer even mean? And what was the spark of that song? I wrote that song with Mike Chapman and Bernie Talbot. Oh. And that was Bernie's title. Okay. So, <laughs> I mean, I know what I think the lyrics are about. Uh, and here's what Bernie does. I mean, there are certain songwriters that write only lyrics, but they write what they now call top line which is basically means the melody, you know, uh-huh. and they get involved in the phrasing and the melody and, you know, where the, some of the hooks are. Like a good example of that would be like Charlie Midnight or Billy Steinberg. Mm-hmm. And they're very involved in the whole process. Bernie, at least in my experience, and I'll bet you anything, it was the same thing with Elton, doesn't do that. He is like a poet, you know, and he just writes poetry and he hands it to you, and then you have to basically turn it into lyrics. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure he did that with Elton, and you know, um, and that's not to take away from him or anything. That's just the way he works. Right. So we didn't really do much with the lyrics. It was just, you know, I wrote the music, mm. and um, for me, I engineer means I engineer this game. I engineer every move you make. In yeah. other words, I'm I'm the manipulator. I'm in charge. Mm-hmm. And whatever you think is going on, I'm really the one in charge here, you know? Yeah. I engineer this game, is the lyric. I like that song a lot, and I wish it had been bigger. And um, It could have been a hit. It was a typical 80s, yeah. like one of those songs you'd hear in the 80s with like um, any of those bands of the day that were like that. And then it's too bad that, that I don't know why the label dropped it, because Obsession was so massive, and it just made them a one-hit wonder, you know? Yeah. Um, because they dropped the ball with that. Yeah, they sure did. Well, you want to hear something funny about dropping the ball, by the way? Please. When The Best came out, it should have been number one in this country. I think it got in the top 20 or something, or maybe top 10. Yeah. They, they just dropped that one, too. I mean, <laughs> it's, 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 it's unfathomable. It was number one everywhere else in the world. I have no idea why they did that, but that just seems like insane stupidity to me. Yep. I lived in England when that song came out, and you're right, it was a much bigger hit over there, where they take the charts more seriously anyway. Mm-hmm. And Walking on Sunshine, I'm lumping them together only because in this case they're similar as well, in that they weren't those number one songs, but they became ubiquitous anyway, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, you're so right. The best did blow up pretty much everywhere else. Here it was fine. It did fine, you know? But I don't know that anyone thought it would be the anthem that it became. I know. It's crazy. Okay. I could keep doing this for hours because you have so many songs, but I'm going to try and be really judicious because I don't want to waste too much more of your time here. (laughs) But I feel like we should talk about The Warrior. How did The Warrior get to them? How did you become involved? When it came to The Warrior, Mike Chapman was producing their record and he had put me together with Nick Gilder just to write a song. 
he knew Nick because he had produced Hot Child in the City, which mm. was a huge hit. Yeah. It's funny. I thought that at first, I thought Nick was a girl because when I heard that track, it sounded like a woman singing, right. which is what's so cool about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I met him, I was surprised. I thought, like, you're a guy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, yes, I am. Mm-hmm. Um, so we wrote The Warrior, and we gave it to Mike. And then he called me up, like, a few weeks later. He said, can you send me that song again? So we sent it to him again. He says, I'm going to cut it. became the first single and her biggest song I would say ever yeah I'm doing a musical which I'm actually turning into it's going to be a movie musical and it's called I am the warrior yeah this is for you right this is a musical about your story well you know it's quasi autobiographical sort of the way almost famous is for Cameron Crowe mm-hmm. but it's it's made up characters and made up some of it's real some of it's not um, but more real than not you know, I'm not, yeah. you know, I'm not famous, like, in sort of the artist sort of vein, but I am as a songwriter, and I think there is a story to tell, again, because, you know, they, we just, artists want to push us to the background. They don't want you to know that we exist, you know, mm-hmm. and um, this is a, a girl's fight to be heard, and it's very empowering. It's a very empowering story for anybody that has a dream. You know, because the the ethos of that is uh, screw all the cynics, because if you're going to win it, don't let anybody shatter your dreams Yeah. and be who you want to be. And that was always what I had to fight for. Um, It's going to be very edgy and... Nice. Sounds like it should be. It's not going to be like a glossy, like the greatest show on earth. Okay. Sort of, it'll be, I'm thinking more like a cross between... Bohemian Rhapsody and Hedwig. Oh, nice. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Okay, and is this in pre-production? Right now, the screenplay's done, and it's going out to producers. We're trying to find a production company, and, um, you know, that's, of course, harrowing as hell, but we're yeah. getting somewhere, so it needs to be made. Sure does. There's so many hit songs in it. Yeah. So between that and the Tina musical, you've got a lot going on right now still. And speaking of not knowing about when your songs are out there, I went to see Moulin Rouge, mm. which I loved, by the way. And it turns out I have a song in it, which I didn't know. Really? So I've got, I've got that happening. It was actually funny because I had gone to the Tina premiere the night before, and uh-huh. I was so tired. I was up all night. So when we went to see the musical, I started to nod off. And it wasn't because I didn't love it, because I <laughs> loved it. I thought it was great. But my friend like elbowed me, like, wake up, they're playing your song. I'm like... What? <laughs> Which one? Love is a Battlefield. Really? Is in Moulin Rouge? <laughs> yeah. It's so easy. All you have to do is fall in love. Love hurts. All you have to do is play the game. Love scars. All you have to do is take on me. No, no, no. Take me, me on. No, 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 because 
forever near and far closer together everywhere i will be with you everything i will do for you know, every song in that is there for a nanosecond there are like hundreds of songs in there uh-huh. it's a very interesting concept what they did because they would take a bunch of songs with the same theme and then do a mashup of them in a new sort of form open up your eyes then you realize here i stand with my everlasting love need you by my side girl you'll be my pride you'll never be denied everlasting love what's love got to do got to do with it I love the movie, and but I haven't. I don't know that I've seen it since I saw it in the theater, and I didn't. Uh-huh. I don't know if I knew they were turning it into a musical. Oh yeah, it's the second biggest musical right now uh, after Hamilton. Oh no way! Okay. Yeah. Wow. Well, it just keeps on going. I mean, the Holly Knight train doesn't stop. You know that is great. No, and I'm doing. I'm doing my memoirs. Perfect. And I'm also going to do a Holly Knight songbook of like all my hits in one songbook. And you're going to sing them. Well, now this is a music book, like a oh, song. Oh, I see. I see what you mean. With okay. notes and drawings and nice. Yeah, good. No, I am never singing again <laughs> on record. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's too bad. I like it. No. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Obviously, you're a legend, and this meant so much to me. And I could keep you for another hour talking about all the other songs we didn't even get around to. But thank you, Holly, for all the good stuff you've put out in this world. Well, thank you for your fandom, because you obviously know my my body work, and I really appreciate that. And Absolutely. Thank you for having me as a guest on your show. You push hard, you stop my circulation. have it holly knight so fantastic now i can imagine some of you out there are probably thinking but wait you didn't talk about this hit or that hit i know i know holly graciously has agreed to come back and do a part two i never do part twos with anybody because i feel like if you can't get the story told the first time then anything you're going to do in a part two is just sort of a leftovers. But that's not the case with Holly. Uh, Totally understandably, she was not mentally prepared to talk to me for like two hours. But she agreed to come back and do a part two. And we're going to touch on all the other stuff that we didn't get to. So here's a little teaser for you. This right here is the song Space that she wrote. It was recorded by Cheap Trick. And I tell you that because our producer this week was Paul Underwood. The great Paul Underwood, this is a pup, a Paul Underwood production, and of course Cheap Trick is his favorite band of all time. 
So as a little thank you to Paul, and as a teaser of what we're going to talk about next time, we wanted to end it with some space. You guys know how to find us by now on Facebook. You can like our page. You can send us a message on there. You can get involved in our daily polls that we've been doing now for a few months. They're a blast. I always love to hear from people. You can find us on Twitter at The Hustle Pod, or you can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. Next week, I think I'm going to play an interview that I did recently with a very prominent producer slash mixer slash engineers. If you were listening to alternative music in the 80s, you saw this guy's name everywhere. Okay? By the way, if you can hear that, I'm in the North Shore of Hawaii on vacation, and it just started pouring rain all of a sudden. That's what you're listening to. Anyway, thanks, everybody. Thank you, Paul Underwood. Thank you so much, Holly. We love you. We'll talk to you next week. Oh, this is my ringtone, by the way. <laughs> the Adams family. That's great. Okay. okay, let me turn this stupid thing off. Okay. Sure. So, um... <laughs>